I hated the thought of being a preacher. It was disgust to me. And so here I find myself preaching. So um, it, it represents that, that God does change hearts and that he does work on us even when we're very rebellious and hard-hearted um, as I was. And so a lot of my teenage years was just very, um, see, um, I was very tormented by fear and anxiety a lot. I just would wake up in the morning with, like, fear and anxiety, and I, it really bothered me, and it just just plagued me a lot. Um, and I thought it would never leave me. Um, and then, you know, I struggled. Like, some people think I'm smart, but I had major um, intellectual struggles back then. I close to flunked my GED. Um, I got really low scores on that, and that really depressed me. I was... I always hoped to uh, be some kind of intellectual, and uh, for some reason I just wanted to be some great thinker, um, a scientist. And um, there I go with the um. <clears throat> We're going to work on this. So, and the so's. So, bless, uh, I bless you for your patience as you're learning to, uh, as you're giving me patience as I learn to be a No, I'm trying not to say so's. <clears throat> Let me look at my notes. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So, you know, a lot of people in here think we're crazy, relig- religious nutcases out there in the Western culture that we live in. So this sermon or this message I'm talking about, we're going to talk quite a bit about the Western mind, which is basically the whole America and Europe and what what we encounter out there and why people view us as religious nutcases and why they view the gospel as irrelevant. So we're going to be talking some of that. I'm going to be quoting quite a few like professors and stuff like that, and it's not so I sound smart. It's just because these people are the people who turn people's hearts from Jesus and onto this naturalistic, no-God way of thinking. And I'm trying to deal with that and, and then tie it all back into the end how Jesus is still the hope for us regardless of the fact that there's this huge array of skeptical intellectualism out there pouring down contempt on all of us. So it's just a lot bigger than what goes on in our minds, and so it's just some, some of these things have to be dealt with. So the quote doesn't sound exactly relevant to you or me at, when I'm quoting it. And um, if you hear anything false, please come to me afterwards and correct me. Um, and if you have anything to add, please come to me afterwards. I'd love to have a, my perspective broadened. So one time I was talking with these teenagers about whether Jesus really existed. And it abruptly ended with this young girl just kind of, Jesus doesn't exist. And I, I, it kind of disturbed me and it kind of led me on a trail to discovering, did Jesus really exist? Um, but let's look a little further at the idea of like myth and story. Because she accused it of being just a myth and a story. So let's look a little deeper into that. Myth originates from the Greek word mythos, meaning word or tale, true narrative. And it's also defined in Webster as a widely held but false belief. So there's two opposing ideas here. One that it's just a fairy tale and one that it's a story. Listen to uh, Peter Stillman, a professor at Yale University. Myths are not mere stories but the story of humankind the lens through which we have always seen and understood the world. You are bound to find everywhere in dreams, rituals, nursery rhymes, in all art forms, a mythic perspective. Myths are metaphors that stand for things other and greater than themselves. So what he's saying is that these stories that we hear about us are what drive our life. 
whether it's the story of naturalism, the story of evolution, or the story of the gospel. These stories drive our life, and so they're all equally relevant in driving our lives. And we shouldn't imagine stories as irrelevant, because here's the shocker. Even a lot of those realistic people who think we're all just a fluke of nature all put their data into a storyline to make this Stephen Jay Gould, who's one of the world's leading evolutionary scientists. We are here because of one odd group of fishes had a particular fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. Because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age. Because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a higher meaning, but we may yearn for a higher answer but none exists. See, he's not recounting formulas to us. He told us a story, the story of naturalism, that you and I are really just biological flukes. We're nothing more than proteins and, and atoms colliding together in the universe. We're nothing more than machines. That's the story of naturalism that is permeates the world out and about. And when we go outside of these walls, people believe that story. And that's why they look at us. And it's held to be higher than any other story. And that's why the gospel is looked at as irrelevant, because that is held as the primary way we look at the world um, in the Western mind. So what's shocking is that nobody lives their life on an Excel spreadsheet or in a test tube. We live by the stories we're told. So let's look into what, a little deeper into whether Jesus was truly here on earth. A compelling reason for Jesus' existence is the, is the major impact he had on the world. In fact, we're up here talking about Jesus 2,000 years later, and that's part of his impact. Jesus is also the, he's the founder of one of the world's largest movements, Christianity. And I don't know of any movement that was started by a non-existent person. He's also one of the most famous and well-known persons of the world. Even his Instagram page has millions of followers. That's a joke, folks. You're supposed to laugh. <laughs> He's being talked about globally as we sit here. He left a mark on this world Alexander the Great could have dreamed of. Now, actual mythic figures, on the other hand, like Hercules and Robin Hood, never left behind that kind of mark. Robin Hood was a nice story, but I haven't heard of hundreds of thousands of people who laid down their life for Robin Hood. If Jesus was a myth like Hercules and Robin Hood... How did he leave the kind of impact he did when the same mythic figures never left that kind of impact? Some of that impact is, that the, pers- is the persecution of the early Christians. N- again, no mythic character in history ever had pagans, Jews, Africans, Europeans, Asians, and many others laying down their lives all at the same point in history and all for one person. But all kinds of people from all over the world were dying for Jesus. Is it How could it be that they were dying for a phantom, or a fluke, or a fairy tale? Why would so many non-Jewish pagans die for a Jewish fairy tale? Most Romans and Greeks despised the Jews. They would never die for a Jewish fairy tale. But here again, even the Jews didn't like Jesus' story. They didn't want a Savior who would die on a Roman cross. They wanted someone who would overthrow Rome. This adds up that thousands of pagans and Jews would have died for a person who never existed. And any other major figure in history who had the kind of impact Jesus had was real. So it seems to me that there's something real here about Jesus. Let's look at a non-biblical source real quick. Cornelius Tacitus, a Roman official who was not a Christian, in his work Annals recorded the following. 
But not all the relief that could come from man, not all the bounties that the princes could bestow, nor all the atonements which could be presented to the gods availed to relieve Nero from the infamy of being believed to have, uh, believed to have ordered the conflagration, the fire of Rome. Hence, to suppress the rumor, he falsely charged with guilt and punished Christians who were hated for their founder of the name was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea and the reign of Tiberius. So that's no New Testament writing right there. That is a Roman who did not think highly of the Christians recording the fact that Jesus was here and he died on the cross. Jesus is also mentioned in the Jewish Talmud and in the Quran. Also mentioned by people like uh, historians like Phlegon and Thallus and Pliny the Younger and Celsus and Josephus in their writings. And there's many other writings out there. Um, and many of these authors were either ambivalent or hostile to Christianity and had no desire to promote it. And, many, and some opposed it. And the New Testament itself also is evidence that there was something going on because even with the Hypocrypha New Testament, it just shows that all of this happened because there was, there was a man named Jesus who walked this earth. He was there. And all of this just rushes forward into where we are now into history and says that there was a man named Jesus and that he did, he did die on a cross and that he did rise on the third day. Even Bart Ehrman, a leading critical scholar of the Bible, is quoted in his article in the Huffington Post as follows. One may well resonate with the cultural despisers of religion, the people that call us religious nutcases and say that we're believing a fairy tale. But surely the best way to promote any such agenda is not to deny what virtually every sane historian, thanks Caleb, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, pagan, agnostic, atheist, what have you, on the planet has come to conclude based on a range of compelling evidence. Whether we like it or not, Jesus certainly existed. Now, it's good to ask questions and not swallow things blindly. Otherwise, all our money would be in Kenyan and Indian bank accounts after every phone call. Um, But there comes a point where question asking reaches a firm resistance to belief. Thomas Nagel, a professor of philosophy at New York University, says, I want atheism to be true. And it made the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. But often life doesn't work the way we want it to. And even if you're a professor at Yale, you don't get the exemption of having life work the way you want it to. So here's the real issue. Does Jesus work with the way life is, the way we find it, with what we see inside of ourselves and what we see around us. Regardless of what these intellectual elites may ever say about life and what it is, does Jesus answer what's inside of us and what we see out of us? Why don't we look at some of the character of Jesus and examine just the purity of his life? So all religions are not the same. They share a lot of common threads, but they're composed by different weavers. Or as Ravi says, they're, they're superficially similar and fundamentally different. And Jesus, as the founder of the Christian faith, shines forth with the purest of character. He didn't abandon his family to find enlightenment like the Buddha. Rather, he came with the answer for mankind. He said, I'm the light of the world. He didn't exploit the milkmaids like Krishna. Rather, he forgave the woman caught in adultery. 
He didn't maraud trading caravans and marry multiple women like Muhammad. Instead, he fed the thousands and told his disciple John to take care of his mother while on the cross. And I don't mean any disrespect of other faiths. I'm merely, I'm merely saying that you can find these things in history of what these founders did. And it's just starkly contrasted to who Jesus was in the purity of his life. Not, and not only is the purity of his life outstanding, but also his teachings and practices do as well. Some religious people, some religious beliefs make others pay the price. Flesh tearing, mutilation, human sacrifice. Jesus instead paid the price that we should have. His body was mutilated, his life was taken, and his purity was condemned. He speaks to us to love God and love our neighbors. To care for the poor, to keep ourselves from sin and defilement, to seek repentance and to trust him. Jesus, he stands out as a shining light among the religious figures and religious teachings in the world. But many in our current Western world view his teachings in life as just nice moral ideas and a life well lived. Nothing that we should take serious, certainly not our Savior and definitely not our Lord. Humanistic idealism permeates the West. And humanism is the idea that we're enough. We don't need God. We've got the answers. The answer is within ourselves. It's to the gospel message, which is that Jesus came and he's the answer for us. Simply put, right now in this room, we live in a culture where we are seen as enough. No God, no Jesus, and certainly no Bible. Interestingly enough, history class never seems to dim the lofty ideals of humanistic thinkers. One or maybe they all just skipped history class. Because I don't know how you can go into history class and forget about the brokenness within our humanity. Why don't we look at some of these points in history that point to the fact that we're broken within and we're broken without and that we need a Savior. I want to raise a generation of young people, imperious, relentless, and cruel. Adolf Hitler, with these words, rained terror down upon Europe and spilled the blood of millions of people. Germany, one of the most sophisticated and educated countries in the world at that time, unleashed a horror unsettling the minds and hearts of people today. The concentration camps, the carnage, the Gestapo offices, and the ovens still speak to us today that humanistic, racial European ideas are a nightmare. Stalin seeking political, economic, geographic, and social dominance made 20 million people in his lust for power. Pol Pot, leader of the Khmer Rouge government in Cambodia, pursuing a Marxist-Leninist economic utopia, killed an estimated 1.5 to 2 million Cambodians, many of whom died of starvation, execution, disease, and overwork. Well, but let's look at the work of historian Frank, Frank DeCotter, author of the important book Mao's Great Famine. And he recently published an article in the History Today magazine summarizing what happened during the rule of Mao Zedong in China. Mao thought that he could catapult his country past the, competi- the competitors by herding villagers across the country into giant people's communes. In pursuit of a utopian paradise, everything was collectivized. People had their work, homes, land, belongings, and livelihoods taken from them. In collective canteens, food distributed by the spoonful according to merit became a weapon used to force people to follow the party's every dictate. As incentives to work were removed, coercion and violence were used instead to compel famished farmers to perform labor on poorly planned irrigation projects while fields were neglected. 
catastrophe of gargantuan proportions ensued. Extrapolating from published population statistics, historians have speculated that tens of millions of people died of starvation. But the true dimension of what happened only is now coming to light thanks to the meticulous reports the party itself compiled during the famine. What comes out of this massive and detailed story is a tale of horror in which Mao emerges as one of the greatest mass murderers the world has ever known. Responsible for the deaths of 45 million people between 1958 and 1962. It is not merely the extent of the catastrophe, um, earlier estimates, but also the manner in which many people died. <clears throat> Between two and three million victims were tortured to death or similarly killed, often for the slightest infraction. When a boy stole a handful of grain in Hunan village, local boss forced his father to bury him alive. The father died of grief a few days later. The case of the boss was reported to the central leadership. One of his ears was chopped off. His legs were with iron wire. A 10-kilogram stone was dropped on his back, and then he was branded with the sizzling tool. The standard punishment. And King Jesus, his name also synonymous with that of bloodshed. That, however, of his own. This Jesus, he died for the world. Instead of shedding the blood of millions, he shed his own blood to save millions. For God so loved the world that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. How marvelous it is that Jesus' love was so great that he laid down his life for us to bring us salvation. Jesus is no dictator. He's no fairy tale. He's our Savior. And when we see the world for what it really is, not just what we imagine it is, and not just what the humanists tell us it is, and when we see the failings of ourselves, we see our own brokenness, and we see our own shortcomings, it points us to the fact that we need a Savior. We need Jesus. And that His message of salvation is what humanity needs. Even in the face of God, Jesus, or the Bible, and we can figure it all out on our own. And wildly enough, skeptics still will object and resist, that, and resist that humans need salvation. One of the world's leading skeptics, Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, lambasts God for all the evils committed in the name of religion. The evil that I may add, we humans have brought about. He throws mud in God's face for the human atrocities that were committed in the name of religion and in all the religious wars. But astonishingly enough, more evils have been committed in the world through the world wars and revolutions that were committed by people pursuing a humanistic, secular, no-God world. Isn't it ironic that the humanistic ideals have caused reign more terror than even the religious wars and ideas have? But it's not religion versus secularism. Both evils done in either name point us to the fact that we are broken and we need a Savior. The modern skeptics like Richard Dawkins continue to throw murder, war, and suffering in God's face. But what we should really be asking is why do us do those things? And what we really should be doing is seeking God for mercy and forgiveness, not lambasting him for things that are within our own evil heart. But yes, the skeptics and the cynics can lambast God all day long. That's what they're doing. They're writing books right now. They're on talk shows right now. They're on podcasts right now. 
they're analyzing and dismantling our humanity and deconstructing the very fabric of reality, making it seem that we're lust-driven meat machines living in some matrix-like illusion that by some random biological chance we're here. But they can never, never love like Jesus. They can never give the grace Jesus does. They can never give the forgiveness Jesus does. They can never give the peace Jesus does. They can never bring the hope Jesus does. They can never bring the comfort Jesus does. They can never bring the restoration Jesus does. They can never bring the cross. They can never bring the hope. Such love of Jesus knows no power to stand against. No skeptical analysis can ever outthink or overcome the purity of his life, the passion of his love, and the, and the salvation he brings for mankind. <clears throat> Jesus is more than we could ever hope for in our state of humanity. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. <clears throat> Jesus speaks to us and says, if anyone would be my disciple, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. The world says go your own way. Pursue your own dreams. Make the universe work for you. Make your own meaning of this life. Jesus says take the way of the cross. <clears throat> the cross being an instrument of death by nature puts to death something. And so when Jesus tells me to take up my cross, he's telling me to die to lust, to die to self, to die to everything inside of me that exalts my sinful self. When we follow Jesus, he shows us the way. We aren't lost in a deep labyrinth of sin and self, nor are we lost in some philosophical nightmare or in the flames of lust. But when we take up his cross, we are led on the path of eternal life. And so we take up the cross of Jesus and journey on, knowing that he will lead us and guide us and keep us. And I know that as I follow him and as you follow him so imperfectly, and when we drop our crosses and we exalt ourselves and pursue our sin, He'll be calling. He'll be showing us how to help the needy and love our families and to put others before ourselves when we take up the cross. And he'll show us how to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. He will show us how to live abundantly. As he said, I've come that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. He's resurrecting our humanity after all. <clears throat> and it is so marvelous That to live for Jesus is the way of love and grace. It's not some hot under the college message you can't live under and I can't live under. But it's some, but it's this grace of Jesus where He meets us where we are, in my weakness, in your weakness, and his, with His grace and kindness, He picks us up and carries us on. He calls us to love one another, to love our fellow humans, to put. And I know that I can't do this without taking up my cross daily and following him. Because that's the weakness I see in my, the weakness of my humanity. I need Jesus and his cross to make me, frankly, just a nice person. That's it. If I'm not taking up my cross and dying to myself, um, I'm just a selfish monster. And I know a humanist would not appreciate that phrase. <laughs> How wonderful it is that living a life of Jesus means hearts are transformed and lives are made new. And to think that I had it all planned out better than God. 
And if we live this kind of life, this life with the cross, we'll recapture the relevance of the Christian message in this Western, humanistic, no-God, secular culture. Because they'll see that something's real inside of us, and they'll just throw the book, The God Delusion, away and come ask you what you've got because they want it too. And not only is Jesus the way for our lives, he's the bulwark for our minds. Going back to the skeptics briefly, we can see that the very things they throw in God's face to disprove him and discredit him actually point us back to the fact that we need help and that we're broken. And how in the world can we lambast God? How in the world can they accuse God of evil if naturalism is actually true? Because if, in fact, the world is just biological, no such thing as injustice. It's just one atom doing something else the other atom didn't appreciate. So their whole starting point is completely, I get flack, but it's bogus. It's, it's bogus. If you deny that there's a, not, if you deny that there's a more God, you don't have any basis to accuse Christians for being hypocrites for God for being evil, and for the world for being a horrible place. Because it's all just atoms colliding if naturalism is actually true. And that's where I brought it all back down, that Jesus' life, his love, and his salvation is what keeps our minds straight. Even when the skeptics and the critics just bring it all home, bring the full weight of their skepticism upon us, they never overcome that life of Jesus, that love of Jesus, and his salvation. Like it says in Revelation, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. The blood of the lamb being the sacrifice Jesus paid to purchase our salvation and our testimony, the fact that our minds are made new, that our hearts are made new, and that our lives are transformed. And like Paul tells us, take a helmet. The helmet is what protects the mind. And so it's that salvation that Jesus brought us that protects our mind from these skeptical onslaughts on our faith. But even in the face of suffering and death, things that rack our minds and really make us question God's faith, he's there. He offers us the comfort of himself. As C.S. Lewis says, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? So our minds are kept straight by Jesus' life by his love, and by his salvation that he brings us. So not only is he the strength for our lives and the book for our minds, but he's the rock for our hearts. There's a lot of things that make us feel pretty bad sometimes. And it's not because he doesn't love us. It's because he's trying to cull from us the things that are destroying us and destroying other people. He loves us more than any other. And that's why he wants those things gone. Things that keep us from life things that keep us from others and happy relationships and things that keep us from God himself. Jesus said the heart is desperately wicked. And that's not something the humanist wants to hear. But that's what God tells us. He tells us that my heart and your heart is desperately wicked. And that's why he tells us to take up that cross and die to ourselves. Because he wants the anger gone. He wants the drug abuses gone. He wants the lust gone. He wants the beatings gone. He wants everything gone that's destroying us and destroying each other. And it's not because he doesn't love us. It's because he wants to give us real life. He doesn't want to give us a substitute or a, or a subsistence. He wants to give us abundant life, as he tells us. 
when our hearts stray and our affections wander from him, he calls us back. As he tells us, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd goes, leaves the 99, goes in search of the one missing. So even when our hearts wander and they go astray because they're desperately wicked and calling us back, he says the good shepherd, the sheep know the voice of the good shepherd. He's the reason for our faith. Jesus told us, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. As Ravi Zacharias explains, I did good only doing a few Ravi quotes, by the way. (laughs) One of the reasons Jesus said we need to have faith like a child is because a child has limited understanding of the concepts of reasons to trust people. But they can understand the character of who they trust. Or more more simply put, a a child knows, has a good mother. It knows the mother is safe. And that's the faith Jesus is calling us to have in Him. That even when we can't make sense of everything, yet to trust Him. Even when our worlds seem to fall apart, yet to trust Him. When we see others destroying others, yet to trust Him. That even when reading about World 2, yet to trust that He's still God. When our minds can't grapple with what's before us, yet to trust Him. To trust that, as the Bible says, will not the judge of all the earth do right. To trust that He will redeem. And to trust that He's working on all of us, even when we can't change that person we want to change. As Rob says, again, faith is a confidence in the person of Jesus Christ and in His power. So that even of my end, my confidence in Him remains. Because of who he is. Faith in Jesus Christ, he, he goes on to say, is a cognitive, passionate, and moral commitment to that which stands up under the scrutiny of the mind, the heart, and the conscience. It's not just an escapist grasp that comes to the rescue when life is out of control. It's a recasting of every threat and possibility that life can present to us and putting it into the design of God. And lastly, Jesus is our life. He rose again. He proved his word and his life were true by conquering death. All the Romans and the Jewish authority that had to do to end what, the, what Jesus started after his resurrection was to dig up his body and parade it through the streets. But they never found his body because it walked out of the tomb on the third day. Because he rose we will also rise too. As it says in John, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son is the true God and eternal life. So if you don't know Christ, come to Christ. And if you're like me, you know Him, but you're still walking with Him, then come to Christ again. As He says, because I live, you also shall live. And as we continue to seek in this life the answers for our questions, to remind, to be reminded that He's everything we need. He's the answer. And to follow Him is the way of life.